Welcome to Radio Free Sunroot. This is Colibri's weekly column. June 3rd, 2020. Trying to go deep on social media is like trying to dig a hole from a moving vehicle. So what's happening at all the George Floyd protests around the country? How many people are showing up? What are the demographics of the crowds? How many cops are there? Which community organizations are involved? Are local officials helping or are they hurting? Who really broke that window or set that fire? What about these reports of incitement by white supremacists? Mainstream media is not answering all of these questions. And they frame everything so narrowly with an inevitable pro-establishment bias, even when their own reporters are mistreated. Trying to sift out the facts from the spin is a challenge, especially if the media you're reading is local to someplace you've never been. You never know what they're leaving out. It's not like most reporters are smarter than other people either. These days, it's more about who could afford journalism school. Plus, 40% of all newsroom jobs in the U.S. have been eliminated since the year 2000. So the resources simply don't exist to provide good coverage, even if they were willing and able. But what about social media? People are posting all sorts of pictures and videos and rants. However, wading through all of these posts, status updates, and tweets, trying to find the who, what, when, where, and why is not only time-consuming and frustrating, but rarely effective for assembling a picture that is anything like complete. True, one will get an impression of events, but this is primarily emotional rather than factual. I'm not dismissing emotion, just recognizing that it's not enough by itself from a news perspective. After scrolling through social media trying to follow current events, I often end up feeling waves of depression, rage, and helplessness, with a sprinkling of hope, probably false, and with no clear sense of what actually happened. So much is illusion, it's easy to find oneself in delusion. I see why the ludicrous conspiracy theories thrive in this environment, as well as the silly misunderstandings, the petty us-versus-them thinking, and the irrational adolescent outbursts. Was social media effective in spreading the initial news of George Floyd's death? Yes, absolutely. But for documenting the reaction, which is a complex set of events with a multitude of actors, not so much. The form of social media does not lend itself to telling a coherent collective story. Rather, it's focused on the individual experience in an essentially standalone form. Hashtags notwithstanding. Everything you see on social media disappears soon after you've seen it. Have you ever tried to find something you saw yesterday or last week? It can be functionally impossible. Trying to go deep with anything on social media is like trying to dig a hole from a moving vehicle. You'll never get more than one shallow scoop from any particular spot, and then zip, you're somewhere else. This is how social media is designed. The endless timelines and the dopamine rewards from reactions keep you endlessly scrolling while they harvest the data about you that is their true product. Their motive is to make profit, not to inform or to inspire. Any good they happen to do, like spreading the word of an injustice, is an unintended side effect. Then there's the censorship, of course. All the social media giants do it, often with algorithms. Like mainstream media, their bias is in favor of the establishment, and they're only too happy to shave off the margins, if only a little bit at a time. If Zuck ends up deciding it's best for him to go along with Trump's anti-Antifa rhetoric, you can bet that a lot of activist content will be gone in an instant. Once upon a time, we had an awesome tool for street reporting, which was designed to inform and to inspire, and that was IndieMedia.org. 
Popularized during the WTO protests in Seattle in 1999, it rapidly expanded into a global network that, briefly, democratized journalism. See my essay, The Seattle WTO Uprising, and the Indie Media Movement 20 years later. Anyone could post text and images, and later audio and video, for the world to see. Each local network had its own website and its own editors who could consolidate individual stories into coherent narratives. This was before social media and before blogs, when it was challenging for an individual to publish on the internet. It's quite an intriguing detail of internet history that it was first the anarchists, not the capitalists, who opened this door to the public. For breaking news like street actions, there had never been a better internet tool than indie media, and there really hasn't been a better one since. But as first blogs and then social media emerged, indie media's popularity faltered and sank. These new inventions offered the same functionality, self-publishing multimedia, but added to the mix the intentional feeding of narcissistic impulses. Indie media was a place to share, social media a place to show off. Guess which one up? Self-absorption. So here we are, with what feels like an historic uprising raging around the country, but who knows what's happening? I interviewed people in Portland and Chicago about the protests there for my podcast, and learned far more in those two conversations than in days of scrolling, but I still want to know what's going down in the Twin Cities, where, ironically, I helped start the local Landy Media site back in the day, but it's been shuttered for years. We're living in very interesting times that are bound to get more interesting. How are we going to inform ourselves? How are we going to organize? I don't know. Indie media had its moment, and it's not coming back. Social media is the beast we're stuck with, but it's a poor tool for the job, and it's not on our side. We need something new to happen. If you enjoyed this reading today, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash colibri, K-O-L-L-I-B-R-I. To find out about the other podcasting I do, visit RadioFreeSunroot.com.